How many of you this morning are happy? Let me hear you. The rest of you, I'm not so sure about. You know, Webster's Dictionary tells us that the word happy literally means to be favored by circumstances or a feeling of great pleasure. I'd venture to say that every single person here this morning wants to be happy and understand that there are plenty of people who will gladly show you their way to happiness or sell you what they say has the answer. Now, many of you are familiar with this ad and this product, and for many years, Coca-Cola has touted that their products will bring you happiness in a variety of ways. For some of you, it's your smartphone. You know that little thing you have on your hip, and you can send and receive texts, and you can send and receive email, you can surf the internet, you can take pictures, you can take video, you can deposit checks, you can play games, so many other things. I don't even know what you can do with the thing. And you know something? You can even talk to somebody on it if you so choose. <laughs> then there are some people who say, well, Pastor, I'd really be happy with a nice shiny red sports car that'll get me from zero to 60 in about three seconds or so. A recent issue of Time Magazine had a headline article entitled The Pursuit of Happiness. And the subtitle was Why Americans Are Wired to Be Happy and What That's Doing to Us. Now, I dare say that for many Americans, it all began 200 plus years ago with Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence when he wrote this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, this has taken off from there, and a lot of different people have then formulated what they believe is the best formula for happiness. A German philosopher by the name of Immanuel Kant, who is considered by many to be a central figure of modern philosophy, argued that it is human concepts and human categories that structure our view of the world and its laws and that those are the source of all morality. Immanuel Kant put it this way, it is not God's will merely that we should be happy, but that we should make ourselves happy. Then the Dalai Lama, the 14th in his lineage of Tibetan Buddhism says, the purpose of our lives is to be happy. Then a couple years ago, uh, what you might call an ordinary housewife named Gretchen Rubin wrote a book entitled The Happiness Project. I like the subtitle to this book, or Why I Spent a Year Trying to Sing in the Morning, Clean My Closets, Fight Right, Read Aristotle, and Generally Have More Fun. She said this, happiness is the meaning and purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence. Now, as we consider the subject of happiness this morning, please keep in mind that different people define happiness and how they find it in very different ways. Now, personally, the night before, th uh, night before Halloween this year, I was very happy because my favorite team won the World Series. <laughs> now, you hear there are some people in the audience who are Cardinal fans. They weren't very happy that evening. And then there are the Yankee fans. Enough said, guys. The truth is that, again, we have all of these different ways that we experience this. And for some people, happiness is not very complex and it, it's not very involved. But for others, it's a never-ending, gut-wrenching experience that continues to frustrate them. A couple years ago, Kathy and I were adopted by a stray cat in our complex. His name is Koopa. 
And we know that at some point in time, somebody cared for him. He has a nice collar and a bell and his name tag on it. Now, for Koopa, happiness is defined by petting him when he's in the mood, a nice shady, quiet spot where he can take his naps, and several doses of his treats during the course of the day. But one old cat who had a very hard life wasn't so fortunate. And when he died, God met up at the pearly gates, and he asked him, he said, how can I make your stay in heaven that much more enjoyable? And the cat thought about it, and he said, well, you know, I lived on a farm all my life. We worked six days like, like dogs, and, and I had to sleep on hard wooden floors all the time. And God stopped him and said, say no more. And instantly there was this big, fluffy feather pillow there. And so the cat went over, and you know how cats are prone to do? He circled around a few times, and then settled himself down and started purring and just very contented. About a week later, six mice were killed on the farm. God met them at the pearly gates with the same offer. And they said, well, you know, all our lives we've had to run. We run from the cats, we run from the dogs, we run from the tractor. Even the farmer's wife chased us all around with a broom all the time. No problem. Instantly, they're all fitted with shiny new skates, and they, they start laughing and doing figure eights and zip off. About a week later, God checks in on the cat. He finds him, as cats do, snoring away, and he gently wakes him and says, how are you enjoying your stay in heaven? How's your pillow? What's going on? Cat says, well, God, the pillow is so soft, and I, I'm just enjoying my sleep, and said, and those meals on wheels are the very best. <laughs> Again, the truth is that Different people express it in different ways. Now, the problem as we look at this this morning, let me tell you, is that there is a rather large gap between our hopes and our expectations and the reality that there is a significant portion of the population that is, and I would say especially lately, very, very cranky and, and dissatisfied. It shows. You look around you. You listen to the news and see even the violent ways that people are reacting because they're simply not happy. It also shows itself in the way that the vast, we'll call it happiness industry, continues to explode and exploit people. Now, different people tap into this in different ways. With pills, 25% of American women and 5% of American men say that they are taking antidepressants in some form or fashion. Some people do it with food, which is contributing to the U.S. obesity epidemic. 48% of women and 44% of men admit that they eat to improve their mood. Then there's the uh, self-improvement industry, if you will, in our country. This could be books or audiobooks or seminars. Well, the surveys tell us that these self-improvement products are a notice $10 billion a year industry. And then there's what we might call borrowed wisdom. Again, they tell us that some 5,000 motivational speakers here in the United States earn a collective $1 billion per year. So you see the pursuit of happiness that once was an ideal has become big business. But again, not an especially effective business at that. In fact, according to the 2012 World Happiness Report, and yes, there is such a thing. It's sponsored by the Earth Institute of Columbia University. According to this report, the United States ranks only 23rd out of 50 countries 
in their happiness quotient. And a lot of these countries are not working nearly so hard at it as we are. The survey says that the United States is far behind number one New Zealand, then Denmark, and trailing even smaller countries such as Singapore, Malaysia, Tanzania, and even Vietnam. The very setup of social media is another way that we can keep score. You might tell everybody or tell me that, hey, Pastor, I have 50 followers on Twitter. And your friend says, ah, that's no big deal. I have 500. Those of you keeping track, Lady Gaga has 38 million. But in a time poll recently, 60% of the people who responded to this poll said that they do not, they do not feel better about themselves after spending time in social media. And 76% believe that people make themselves look happier and more content and more satisfied on their Facebook page than they really are. This past year, a psychologist by the name of Ryan Howell at the San Francisco University conducted a survey of over 1,000 people by administering a series of questionnaires about the things that they buy, the reasons that they buy them, and what their level of happiness is with those products that they are buying. He found that the more a purchase was motivated by an effort to impress somebody else, the less of a happiness boost that it conferred. Now, in a very well-to-do culture such as we have here in the United States, there's a lot of opportunity for that kind of exhibitionistic spending, as well as the letdown that follows when our hopes and everything are not met by that new purchase. $118 billion were spent on travel abroad by Americans in 2012. We spent some $25 billion on going to see sporting events. Along with Canada, we spent $11 billion on movie tickets. $140 billion a year on recreational gear and some $200 billion on electronics. So it's not like we don't have the resources. But Howell is expanding his database with the help of an interactive website that allows people to take surveys about what they buy, when they buy it, etc. Their responses are lending support to a conclusion that he has drawn that another mistake that we are making is choosing to buy things instead of investing in experiences. Now, the truth is, everybody look down at your feet for just a moment. Your shoes are not really all that unique. They might be a different color, different shape. I don't see anybody wearing neon this morning, but uh, we have that too. Think about it when you go home today and maybe you're going to watch a football game or two, or maybe you're going to watch a movie. Your TV, no matter how much it costs, no matter how many doodads it has on it, is not really all that unique because a lot of other people are watching television on the very same thing. But if you stop and think about it, your last vacation to wherever, you fill in the blank, or your family camping trip are much more particularly yours because nobody else in the world did exactly the same thing that you did with this very same people that you did. And far from wearing out, the memories of these experiences grow richer over time. Howell concluded, he said, money can make you happy but it's about how you spend it, as we see from these particular statistics. 
But you see, the, the problem is, is that's what they call consumptive happiness. This is happiness drawn from reaping, not from sowing. And what it may be the goal of our hard work, and it may be produced by it, but it's a goal that once achieved often leaves many people feeling empty and bored. In fact, since 1972, only about one-third of the American population have described themselves as, quote-unquote, very happy. And according to other polls, they say that Americans who view themselves as optimists has plummeted from 76% to 50%. Meanwhile, more than 20% of the U.S. population will suffer from a mood disorder at some point in time in their lifetime. More than 30% are going to be afflicted by some sort of an anxiety disorder. And by the time we're 18, 11% of the population will have experienced some form of depression. So I want to go with you to some wisdom penned a thousand years before Jesus Christ was born by arguably the wisest man who ever lived, King Solomon. He said, I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. So I said, laughter is silly. What, what, what good does it do to seek pleasure? After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. And while still seeking wisdom, I clutched, I grabbed at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born in my household. I also owned large herds and flocks, more than any of the kings who lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all the men who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom, notice, never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, the reward for all of my labors. Now I want you to look at his conclusion with me, because all these things that he did and all these things that he tried, and many of these things are reflected in American culture in the 21st century, and this is what Solomon concluded. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. So the question is about what is God's will regarding our happiness? Doesn't God want me to be happy? And so I want to take a brief look as we finish up this morning with what I believe God has to say. Now I'm going to share with you I don't have any new revelation for you. But what I want to share with you is some illumination from God's word. Kind of hoping that the light clicks on and we all see and understand what God's will is for us in this realm of happiness. First and foremost, you need to understand something. Happiness is a destination. Or it's not a destination. It's a lifestyle. It's about the choices and decisions we make every single day of our lives that are going to impact us rather than some far-off destination that we're looking at. 
In Matthew chapter 5, notice what Jesus himself said. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, if you notice, Jesus begins each subject line with the word blessed. The word in the Greek translated there, blessed, means happy or fortunate. Now, the qualities that Jesus mentions here in the Sermon on the Mount, and you notice up here the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, etc., these are obviously not the characteristics that are produced in somebody by the external righteousness that the Jews were used to seeing modeled by the Pharisees all the time. But rather, these qualities that Jesus mentioned are internal. They come from a person who knows that they are a child of God and one who is seeking to walk in the Spirit, as Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5. Now, I want you to understand, as you look at this, to be poor in spirit is not to lack courage. Rather, it's to acknowledge the fact that I am spiritually bankrupt and I need God. The Bible says that every one of us have sinned because we're not as perfect as God is. Those who mourn are those who recognize those needs and they turn to God, the only one who is able to meet our every need. The word meek generally suggests gentleness and the self-control that goes along with it because that person is not going to be under the, the control of the master called anger or hate or vengeance. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are people who develop a strong spiritual appetite. They, they want to get into the word and, and they want to know more about God's will. It's a continuing desire for personal righteousness and holiness that we recognize is only attainable in and through our relationship with God. Now it's these qualities along with the others that Jesus touches on here in Matthew chapter 5 in his Sermon on the Mount that point out that in order for us to have the proper foundation for this whole happiness experience, I need to seek God first. God has to be foremost in my life. Notice in Matthew chapter 6. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. In this passage in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus asked him, why are you worried about what you're going to wear? Why are you worried about where you're going to lay your head down? Why are you worried about what you're going to eat? He goes on to talk about the flowers in the fields and the birds in the air. He says, your heavenly father knows this and he takes care of all this. He says, what makes you think he doesn't understand your needs? And then Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added now, whatever the parameters of what I'm thinking of or doing or struggling with, my consideration always, always, always needs to begin with my relationship with the Lord and His will and His direction. And remember that that relationship begins only one way. When I'm poor in spirit and I recognize my spiritual bankruptcy, God reminds us in Romans chapter 6 that the result of that bankruptcy, the result of those sinful choices is that I will be separated from God for all eternity. But Paul ends that verse by saying, but God's gift 
is eternal life through Jesus Christ. We're coming into the holiday season. I'm sure a lot of your kids are, and your big kids are looking forward to Christmas, looking forward to the excitement and the presents under the tree. Remember, all you have to do for that present to be yours is pick it up and accept it. And the same thing is true about beginning a new relationship with God. It all begins with accepting the gift that Jesus offered when he died on the cross and paid for our sins. Now, when I do turn to God, understand, he will answer me, and I must choose to obey him. I want you to circle that word choose, because really that's the most important word in this declaration. You see, God does not micromanage our lives. He's not going to come in and take over. When I'm headed in the wrong direction or thinking about doing something I should not be doing, he's not going to grab me by the scruff of the neck and pull me back. I have to make that choice. God makes himself clear through the ministry of the Spirit and the ministry of the Word of what I should do and what I should not do. But I have to make that choice to obey God. Notice how Moses puts it in the book of Deuteronomy. Now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask, Who's going to send up into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we can obey it? Nor is it far beyond the sea so that you have to ask, well, who's going to be able to cross the ocean and get it and proclaim it so that we may obey it? No. The word is very near you. It is in your mouth. It's in your heart so that you may obey it. This day, he says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you Life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. Guys, make a choice about life so that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. Let me say to you guys, it isn't really all that hard, but we do have to stay focused on the Lord. We've got to apply God's truth in every single area of our lives. Which brings me to the next point, and that is, I have to understand that true happiness is found only in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. A new family moved into a small country town, and that very first Sunday, their son was in Sunday school. But the teacher noticed that he was a little bit down, seemed to be a little bit withdrawn, and so she went over to him and asked him, said, son, is there anything wrong? No, not really. Said, well, you seem a little bit down. Well... My dad said I needed to come to church this morning instead of going fishing with him. I was, I was really looking forward to going fishing, but my dad said I really needed to come to church. And the teacher was immensely impressed that his dad seemed to have the right perspective. And so she asked him, said, well, did your dad tell you why you should be in church this morning rather than going fishing? Yeah, he did. My dad said he didn't have enough bait for the both of us. Notice in John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Now, you don't have to have one or two green thumbs to understand Jesus' analogy here. If a man remains in me, remains connected to the vine, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But notice he says, apart from me, guys, there's nothing you can do. You're not going to bear much fruit. You're not going to experience much happiness. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers The branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, 
Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. God did not design the Christian life to be a static life, but rather a life of action, a life of of doing, a life of being. But if I'm going to stay on track and I'm going to stay focused, and I certainly need to, then someone's going to have to be in control of this ship. Someone's going to have to be setting the direction. Someone's going to have to correct the course occasionally. And I submit to us all that God makes it very, very clear in his word that I must allow the Holy Spirit to be in control. You see, the Bible tells us that the moment that we trust Christ as our Savior, we're sealed, marked, and indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. It's a permanent indwelling. We don't have to ask or seek it. God is going to give it to us. But once I have the Holy Spirit indwelling me, once I have that new nature, Paul talks about in Galatians 5 about the battle that's going to be waged between what my sinful nature wants me to do and what that perfect Holy Spirit wants me to do. And again, I must choose to allow the Holy Spirit to be in control. Ephesians 5, Paul says this, don't act thoughtlessly. Don't, don't, don't do it without thinking, guys. But try to understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, let the Holy Spirit fill and control you. Now, you all understand the analogy there. When somebody has too much alcohol to drink, it's going to loosen their inhibitions. Then they do things that they would not normally or naturally do, sometimes pretty stupid things. So Paul says, guys, instead of letting some outside force Instead of letting some outside influence control you and dictate what you do and how you do it and the way that you do it, instead, let, allow, choose for the Holy Spirit to fill you and control you. Now, please understand that this is a choice that you and I have to make every single day, day in and day out, because our old nature and the enemy are always in attack mode always looking to undermine our relationship with the Savior and our relationship with each other. But when I do look at this principle and I allow God the Holy Spirit to influence me in this way, metaphorically, I provide a fertile environment in my life for what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit to grow. Notice what he says. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. There's that word, happiness. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's nothing that can stand against us, he says. No law, no force, nothing. Now, it's important. I want you to note a couple of things about this. First of all, the fruit that Paul describes here is not and cannot ever be self-produced. So you can't get it by trying harder, by working harder, by working more hours. Those things can accomplish things on the job. You might earn more money to buy more things, to accomplish more goals. But this fruit that Paul talks about here is not and cannot be self-produced. This fruit is a byproduct of the Holy Spirit working in and through a believer who has provided, if you will, fertile soil through his or her obedience to the Spirit's leading in their life. I want you to also notice that the word fruit is singular. It indicates that these qualities constitute a unity. Think of it like a bunch of grapes, not as nine different pieces of fruit. It means simply that 
when I am being obedient to the Spirit, when I am submitting myself to God's will, and the fruit of the Spirit is produced in my life, that all nine of these characteristics are going to be present in me. The problem, though, is you and I can, and we do, when perhaps stimulated in the wrong way, we kind of shove some of these characteristics in the background. Notice how Paul concludes in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now again, the first three characteristics in Paul's fruit of the Spirit understand, are habits of the mind that find their source in God. The word love, agape, is the love that God originated. The Bible says in 1 John 4 that God is love. He embodies love. He personifies love. It's listed first because it is the foundation of all the other eight characteristics that you see here. God is love. God loves the entire world. The self-sacrificing love that sent Christ to die for sinners is the kind of love that believers who are spirit-filled will demonstrate in their lives. It's this love that sent Christ to die for sinners that continues to persevere in us in spite of oftentimes our willingness to give in to sin and temptation in our life. The word joy, happiness, is a, it's a deep and abiding inner happiness that flows from the Godhead in and through them and in and through us. The key thing is, it doesn't depend on our external circumstances. In fact, Jesus told his disciples in John 16, guys, I'm going to give you this peace. It's a peace that's going to surpass your ability or understanding, but around you in the world, you're going to have tough times. When we look at God and we draw strength from and happiness from this peace, it's because it rests in the fact that God is sovereign. That nothing takes God by surprise. That he already knows the answer to every question, no matter what it may be. And the word peace talks about an inner peace, an inner repose and quietness. Again, even in the face of difficult circumstances or situation. Doesn't matter what's going on around us, we can have this peace of God. Because again, it is generated by God the Holy Spirit. I have a couple of wrenches here. Many of you guys will probably recognize them, and perhaps even some of you ladies. Now, these are pretty good size. This combination wrench, you could, well, I don't think you'd use it on your car, but if you had a big uh, highway truck or something, you might use it. If you're doing some plumbing work or a lot of construction work around the house, you might use this pipe wrench. Now, both of them, when we use them as they are designed for what they're designed to do, They really, really do a great job. But if you're honest with yourselves, we all have used them at times for things that they weren't really designed for. And this makes a good pry bar. This oftentimes can make a good hammer. It's got good weight behind it. The problem, though, is that when I use these tools for something other than what they are designed for, They may get the job done somewhat, but it's not going to be the way that the right tool would have gotten it done. You see, if I use this for a a hammer or a battering ram, a lot of bad things can happen. 
It may glance off what I'm hitting, or I might miss it entirely, end up with skin knuckles, or worse. If I'm using it as a hammer, it may or may not drive that nail in. It might also bend the nail at an angle. It might skew it in some way. Or, if I miss entirely, now I've dented or marked up that surface. Because I'm using it for something it just wasn't designed to do or to accomplish. Brothers and sisters, I submit to us all, just like those wrenches can do things that they were not designed to do, we human beings can achieve a certain level and a certain degree of happiness. But trust me, it is not, never will be, never can be, all that God intended for it to be in our lives when we are seeking to to satisfy or to structure that around anything that the world has to offer instead of what God offers to us. You see, we human beings are not products of random chance. God designed us. He created us in his image. And God designed us to enjoy happiness in and through a close personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Just look around you. Friends, family members, neighbors, co-workers. Look at yourself. The happiness, quote-unquote, that far too many people have outside of a relationship with God is temporary at best. You see, the problem is then we have to get more or more of, and it literally becomes this vicious cycle, a never-ending cycle that we allow ourselves to be trapped in. Number six, I must keep, I must keep a proper perspective on blessings. Those of you who know me, I'm not a prosperity preacher. I'm not telling you if you give to me or give to this church or whatever that God's going to make you wealthy and give you that fancy red sports car and whatever else you want. But the truth is that when we are faithful and when we are obedient, God promises that he's going to bless us. Some of those blessings may very well occur here in the physical realm. But guys, we really need to try to keep a handle on it because it is so very easy for us to get distracted. It is so very easy for us to forget that the true source of happiness is only going to be found in my relationship with the Lord. Notice what Peter wrote. His divine power, God's divine power, has given you and I everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. It's through these that he has given us his very great and precious promises so that, notice, through them, you and I can participate in the divine nature and we can escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. The world has a lot of things that it offers. And God simply encourages, guys, listen. God's divine power has already given us everything we need for life and godliness. And wrapped up in those two characteristics are our ability to be happy, our ability to enjoy that happiness, and our ability then to be able to share it and communicate it with other people. But again, it must rest on my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It must rest on my active participation in my walk. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2.12 that I need to work out my salvation. Not work for, but work out. 
I have to exercise it. I have to, you know, put a, allow a stress load on it every once in a while that it'll make me stronger, that it'll draw me closer to God. You see, because the fact is that sin nature, when I trusted Christ as my Savior, it didn't evaporate. God did not take it away. And because of the influence of that sin nature, because of the battle that goes on every single day, you need to beware of the influence of the enemy. Understand that he is out there. Understand. We're not talking about the boogeyman, okay? We're not talking about some guy in a red union suit with a fork tail and a pitchfork. We're talking about a very real, very intelligent, very evil being. Peter goes on to say, be self-controlled and alert. Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Notice, looking, looking and searching for someone to devour. When you read in the book of Job, chapter 1, we find the angels came into God's presence. And and in among them, in among them was Lucifer. And God singled him out. Lucifer, where you been? What you been doing? Oh, you know, just out roaming. Looking for someone to devour. Looking for someone to drag down. The truth is that Satan and his demons are desperately working overtime to get us all to believe that we simply don't have enough time to have a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. That we simply don't have enough time to spend quality time in God's Word, seeking to understand what direction God has laid down for us. That we simply don't have enough time or energy to give of ourselves to help those who are struggling or those who are in need because we're just so busy, caught up in chasing that ever-elusive happiness. Romans chapter 12, Paul encourages you in this regard. He says, don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world. Instead of that, let God, allow God to transform you into a new person, notice, by changing the way you think. Then you'll know. Then you will know what God wants you to do, and you will know how good and pleasing and perfect his will really is. In verse 1, Paul begins it, depending on the translation you have, he says, I beg you, brothers, by the mercies of God. It's not a direct command in the sense of, you know, don't lie, don't steal, don't covet your neighbor's wife or the things that he has. And Paul is imploring these believers, guys, please understand, I'm begging you. You really need, you really need to allow God to have the preeminent spot in your life. You can enjoy the things of the world without allowing the world to creep in and crowd out everything that you know, everything that you need to know, everything that should be running your life in your relationship with the Lord. Let God transform you by changing the way that you think. Now, make no mistake about it, guys. This is something that we're going to have to fight with and do every single day. Because the enemy is always in attack mode. Never takes a vacation. He's always looking to lay a trap. He's always looking for some way to bring us down. Some way to separate us from the close relationship that God desires to have with us. As we get into this holiday season, let's not allow our happiness to be directed and defined by this world that we live in. 
Instead, I pray that each and every one of us will seek God on a daily basis. That we will allow God the Holy Spirit to direct that pursuit of happiness. Doesn't God want me to be happy? Absolutely. I believe God wants us to be happy. But as always, it's all about happiness the way that God defines and designed it. In and through a personal relationship with him. Not the way, not the way that it has come to be accepted and defined by the world in which we live. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed. Perhaps you're a visitor or a guest with us this morning or maybe you've been here before. But you're not absolutely certain of your personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. As I mentioned earlier, the Bible says that our sinful choices, the willful disobedient choices that we make, will keep us separated from God for all eternity. But that isn't God's will. And the Bible says that God's gift is eternal life through Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible is very clear that God loved us so much that he sent his only son. He allowed him to be nailed on that cross. And he completely paid the penalty for all of our sin. Now, it is our choice, you and I. We have to apply. We have to make that true in our life. And the way you do it is simply by receiving a gift. With every head bowed and every eye closed in the quietness of your mind, perhaps talking to God and saying something like this, God, I, I really don't understand all of this, but I know I'm not perfect. And I do want this gift of eternal life that you offer. And so I will accept the gift of your son, believing that when he died on the cross, he died and paid for my sins. Just something like that in your own words. God knows your, your heart. God knows your mind. God knows what you're going through. God loves you. You might not like some of the things you're doing or thinking, but God loves you, and he's already made that payment for you. So I'm going to pray silently, and as I do, I would encourage you. Again, if you walked in here this morning not being absolutely certain of your eternal destiny, that you would reach out and accept that gift that God offers you this morning. Father, I thank you for this time that we have been able to gather together to worship and celebrate our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we can only begin to say thank you for the terrible price that he paid on the cross at Calvary for each and every one of us. Father, I thank you and praise you that you desire to have that personal relationship with us. We broke off that relationship, but you offer us a way to repair it permanently through your son, Jesus. And I pray, Father, that no one will leave this auditorium today without being absolutely certain of their personal relationship and their eternal destiny. Father, I thank you for loving us. I thank you for that sacrifice. And I thank you, Lord, for the word that you've given us to give guidance and direction. Lord, to help us to combat the lies, the trickery, the falsehoods of the world in which we live. Lord, and I pray that each and every believer here 
will begin to truly experience happiness in and through their relationship with you. Again, Father, I thank you that it is you who has made all this possible. We thank you for your love. Thank you for your many blessings. For it's in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Before we close this morning, just a couple of things. First off, if you made that decision this morning, I'd like to send you a little booklet that will reinforce what I shared with you. And, and just to give you some scripture about that. And so in your bulletin uh, is a little white connection card on the back side. It says, my decision today. Please fill that out and fill it out in its entirety. And you can either drop it in the giving kiosk as you leave or take it to the connection station. Either way, I promise you we won't sell your name to a telemarketer. But uh, just would like to send you this booklet so that you can be absolutely certain of the the decision that you're making today and what God promises you.